Welcome to the Idol Cast. Hit it. July 17th, 2004. I'll link to the video in the show notes because it is worth watching for the incredible Visual K inspired hairdos alone. Okay, so in my history series, I spend a fair amount of time on Dongbang Shinki, aka Toho Shinki, aka DBSK, TVXQ, <laughs> THSK, uh, the names go on. The super influential and super popular group debuted as a five-member a cappella unit, and as five, they rose to the very toppermost of the poppermost before imploding spectacularly, leaving behind two of the members carrying on the group name as a duo, while the other three scattered to the winds. What happened and why is something that I only briefly touched on in my history series because the story of TVXQ's disbandment and rebirth, I guess you could call it, uh, is extremely complex, and the details remain contentious among fans even now. I'd wanted to do something on this for a long time, and the recent turmoil in SM Entertainment seemed as good a reason as any to actually dust off my drafts and dig into SM's past to try and understand what happened to TBXQ. So, because this is my podcast, let's start at the beginning. Before we can understand where TVXQ came from and where they went, we have to look back at SM Entertainment and their history of, let's just call them control issues. A lot of what plays out in the story that's going to be told in this episode series is heavily influenced by the economic realities of the music business and of the music business in Korea specifically. So let's take a minute to get the lay of the land. As I've covered on the podcast before, what we now know as K-pop started bubbling up in the like mid to late 80s. South Korea was emerging from years of strict authoritarian control, and the brand new pop music market was wide open for anybody who wanted to compete. And this obviously included the big three record companies, you know, Jigu Records, Seoul Records, and Sungun, as well as foreign entertainment conglomerates, Korean chaebol companies, and upstart indie companies. As our main characters begin to come on stage, just keep in mind a couple of things. Number one, bootlegging and piracy were rampant in Korea, and they would remain so, and probably still remain so. Ironically, this actually gives an edge to the domestic producers over the foreign conglomerates trying to enter the market and the foreign major labels would lobby for years and years to try and claw back revenue from Korea. The overwhelming impression that I get of the music industry in Korea as the, you know, 1980s turned to the 1990s is one of handshake deals and backroom agreements. At least looking back from 2023, government regulators at the time seemed more interested in making sure that songs were free of improper lyrics than in financial impropriety. Two, as the 1990s dawned, with economic liberalization came an attempt to fit those Korean music consumer habits to something of a global standard, right? It doesn't work. But during those years, you did see 
um, shops like Tower Records, the Virgin Megastore, move into Seoul. Unlike in Japan, where there are still physical Tower Records locations open for business in 2023, there just wasn't and isn't the same culture around like record and CD buying in Korea. And you know, this era does not last, but it was booming kind of, or, or starting to boom sort of in the 1990s. There was a, there's a little boom. Okay. So let's start this story. Put yourself back in the mid 1980s. The 1988 Seoul Olympics are coming. The pop music field is wide open. The old guard big three labels like Chigu Records, formerly home to Trot King, Choyoung Pill, they're trying their hand at contemporary teen pop with singers like Kim Sun Won, who is known as the Korean Madonna. pop singers. They borrow heavily from what was happening in the massive Japanese pop music market in their styling, their dancing, their songs. Kim San Wan's poofy hair and her poofy skirts could have been taken directly from Nakamori Akina's wardrobe. Three-member boy group Sobangcha, launched by the entertainment firm Hanba Planning, looked and sounded a lot like three-member boy group Shonen Tai from Japan's Johnny's and Associates. I love you, I need you. may not have understood, but the kids were having a blast. Within, you know, government-approved limits. Now, meet Isuman. This former artist turned aspiring producer had just returned from a stint studying abroad in California with an appreciation for American pop music and especially for MTV, which had launched in the States in 1981. He decided to jump in on this new sparkly teen pop scene and introduce a more American-influenced superstar for the Korean market. Specifically, he was taken with the look and feel of Bobby Brown in his Every Little Step video. Bobby Brown is flanked by two backing dancers, creating a look that was perfect for the boxy television screens of the era. Now, meet Hyunjin Young, one of the many talented young dancers in the scene that centered around the famous Moonlight Club, which was a popular hangout for Black American GIs posted to Seoul. Hyunjin Young came from a somewhat troubled background. His mother had a long and very expensive battle with stomach cancer before passing away when he was only 14 years old leaving both the young teen and his father, who was a jazz pianist and already in his mid-50s at that point, both emotionally and financially devastated. When Hyunjin Young was only about 16 or 17 years old, troubled young teen earning money by backdancing for other Moonlight Club scenesters like teen heartthrub Park Nam Jung, he was scouted by aspiring producer Lee Soo-man for his new company, SM Planning. A couple of years later, in 1990, after some time training, Hyunjin Young and Wawa, his backing group, released their first album, the new Jack Swing-influenced, midi-packed, New Dance One. Oh, 
was a killer album. Unfortunately, it was also just a little ahead of its time, and had only modest record sales. The hottest male teen idol act was still Hyun Jin Young's old club moonlight buddy, Park Nam Jung, who, despite his cool shades and his Michael Jackson-esque costuming, was sonically still rooted firmly in the trot era. To make matters worse, the next year, in 1991, Hyun Jin Young was sniped by the police while performing on stage, literally he was arrested on stage at an outdoor concert in Busan. He was convicted of having smoked marijuana and had to serve prison time, during which, unfortunately, as he would later explain, he was introduced to a much wider sphere of drugs and drug dealers. His arrest caused major headaches for the young company, with other company employees also coming under investigation. One important early SM employee, uh, manager Choi Jin Yol, was so upset over this that he quit and took all of his industry connections and know-how and went to work with this, you know, young, unknown, up-and-comer, a guy named Seltaji. Isumon, however, did not give up on his star just yet. Uh, Hyun Jin Young was still under contract. So when he was released from prison in 1992 and began performing again, the response was apparently good enough that Isumon called him back up to SM. And later that year, with the jibing encouragement of another of his old Club Moonlight buddies, this guy named Young Hyung Suk, aka YG, aka one of Seo Taeji's uh, backing group, The Boys, um, and you know, part of the group that had just kicked off this massive wave of teen popularity, Hyun Jin Young releases New Dance 2. And this time the market was much more ready to hear what he wanted to put out. hit with teen audiences. And so for high school kids across the nation, Saltagian Boy's Nan Adayo was replaced by Hyun Jin Young's You Are Unclear in My Memory, which was written by um, him and another Club Moonlight guy, Itak. So Hyun Jin Young and SM Planning were supposed to split the profits 6-4, with Hyun Jin Young getting the 4, except that the company that was manufacturing the albums, uh, they had some problems. So this company, Sora Bol, had taken a massive financial hit after a tragic crowd crush incident where a young teenager died and dozens were injured at a New Kids on the Block concert that they had sponsored and SM was unable to collect about 500 million won that they were owed in sales. And, you know, this was through absolutely no fault of SM. But still, you know, the show must go on, right? So work began on New Dance 3, and a lot of time and money was sunk into the production. And so, you know, you get to 1993, and teenagers across the country are just like, they're, they're poised and ready for this chart battle, right? The original rivalry, Seltaeji versus Hyun Jin Young. And fans bought hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies of both Seltaeji and Boys 2, uh, which released in June 1993, and then of New Dance 3, which was released in September 1993. So, you know, you have this big tentpole release of SM Planning, 
uh, you know, they kind of needed the money um, for this album, right? Um, along with like there was merch and television appearances and you know whole like there was a lot riding on this and I mean it, it looked like they had another smash hit is one very large problem with this plan. Uh, Hyunjin Young <laughs> Hyunjin Young was busted again for drug use again in November of 1993. Um, and this time it was not marijuana, it was methamphetamines and he would not be making a triumphant comeback after he served his jail time. So the unsold Hyunjin Young merch was destroyed, albums were confiscated, and Hyunjin Young himself was blacklisted. Isumon even had to sell off some real estate holdings to pay his debt, and he washed his hands of both Hyunjin Young and the hip-hop genre completely. He tried pushing artists like R&B singer Yoo Young Jin, who was another Club Moonlight alum, um, and who had debuted in August 1993, followed by a rock trio called Major, and then this duo J&J &J in 1994. And it's not like these acts were bad or total flops. The problem was, circling back to what I said at the top of the episode, these adult-oriented and kind of more general public-facing acts, they simply weren't generating enough revenue to keep SM planning afloat in an increasingly competitive marketplace. How could a small independent music company like SM Planning compete with megacorps like Samsung or Warner Brothers? Well, it couldn't. At least not with kind of those MOR style uh, artists. But Isuman was not finished with the music business. And to understand everything that comes after the founding of SM Entertainment in 1995, you have to remember, or just keep in the back of your mind, exactly how burned Isuman had been not just by Hyunjin Young's out-of-control antics, but also, you know, kind of by the industry itself and by government. You know, it wasn't his fault that Sodomo Records had been negligent, but he had taken a massive financial hit for it regardless. His office staff hadn't been responsible for the drug use, but he'd lost important members of his team because they'd also been thrown under government investigation. You know, did did they really need to confiscate all that merch <laughs> and albums? Like, you know. Um, so yeah, so Isuman needed money, but almost more importantly, I think to, to really do this properly, he needed control, right? More control over the artists um, and more control over how that money was coming in. So by this time, Isuman had watched the huge mobilization of teen fan club power and teen consumption power um, for Soteji and boys. And this was an extremely powerful moneymaker, right? And one that he'd, he'd gotten a taste of with Hyunjin Young. But he, you know, it just it hadn't tapped. <laughs> he hadn't unlocked that potential, right? To properly harness it, he needed artists free of what he would later call insange monje, or problems with their personalities. And this would be instrumental in the formation of Isuman's first big project with SM Entertainment, a teen idol group in the manner of, you know, what they were doing in Japan, uh, called HOT, High Five of Teenagers, who were intended to promote kind of a healthy and specifically very teenage pop culture. Okay. 
나는 벗어 They had done careful market research and landed on this formula of a teenage group that had a dance and songs and would spark new trends. And the original idea was that the members would, you know, quote unquote, graduate from the group when they got too old in order to keep HOT eternally young. Uh, yeah, uh, K-pop fans today will know that Isuman would continue to chase this concept all the way up until he was booted out of the company in 2023, and he never got it to properly work. So like other teen pop singers before them, the boys of HOT were carefully chosen for their looks and their talents, but SM Entertainment wanted something different for this new group, making the first moves toward creating idols out of pop stars. Another important factor in selecting the members of HOT were their personalities. You know, these were good kids. They were hardworking, diligent, respectful, Kangta, Moon Hee-jun, Jang Woo-hyuk, Tony An, and Lee Jae-won. They debuted as HOT with the album We Hate All Kinds of Violence in September 1996, and the first two singles, Warrior's Descendants and Candy, remain K-pop mainstays to this day. While the adults may still not have understood what their teenagers were doing, HOT were a massive hit with the target market, and the boys were, they were worked hard to capitalize on this new success. And then in 1997, HOT were followed by SES, which was Korea's first really successful female idol group, um, and they were kind of modeled on um, this group Speed from Japan. <laughs> going, you know, pretty well for Isuman and his new company, especially since he had formed this new advisory and production company in 1997, of which he was a sole owner, called Like Planning, and then he signed that new company to a sweetheart deal with his growing SM Entertainment, which meant that he got a nice cut of all the revenue coming in. You know, just like boss things, right? <laughs> And then in 1998, during the making of HOT's third album, CEO Jung Hae-ik, I mentioned him earlier, was forced out by this other guy, Kim Kyung-wook, who took his spot as the number two man in the company, and in one of the ballsiest moves in K-pop business history, Kim Kyung-wook, CEO Kim, also managed to assign himself the copyright for the name H.O.T. 
to himself personally. He personally owned the name H.O.T. So why CEO Jung was forced out is not something I could uncover from my perch in America. He was accused of doing something something and it's unclear whether or not he did this something or whether he was just accused of doing it. Whatever the reason, Jung Haik was pushed out of SM in 1998 and eventually landed over with rival Sidis, where he helped launch a very popular boy group, G.O.D. in 1999. And we'll meet up with him again in a few minutes. So, despite the launch of six-member boy group Xinhua in 1998 and then R&B duo Fly to the Sky in 1999, H.O.T. and S.E.S. remained SM Entertainment's main moneymakers. So SES had been put together with an eye to the Japanese market, but they never really found success there. Um, this could be apocryphal, but the story that I saw was that they were turned down by Sony um, and they landed at an agency, you know, more associated with modeling and television. But HOT in particular were expanding the reach of not just SM Entertainment, but all of the Korean wave, Hallyu into the important market next door in mainland China. So so yeah, HOT really opened the door to the Chinese pop market for Korean artists, and the next couple of years would not only see Chinese teens copying their outrageous hairstyles, but Chinese companies would also scramble to assemble their own knockoff groups. Um, but that's a story for another episode. Oh. Woo. <laughs> Hi, was Tony. Sin, Sin, Nian Kuala. Hi, was Zhang Youho. Thank you. Hi, that's how I'm going to go. 大家好,我是李佳元。我愛你們。今天早,你們非常高興。We welcome all of you guys for coming down here to our concert and this is a great moment for us. Uh, we hope you enjoy the show. We'll do our best to show you what Korean music is all about. Thank you. Oh, uh, good. Yeah. Uh, this is like Dao Chungwa, Momata Biekao Sing. Hi, yo, Jomato, Fanning, Woman, the Gummy Man, Woman Fei Chang Kao Sing. Thank you. I love you. Yeah, woman, As we roll into 2000 and 2001, things are going to get kind of complicated, so, you know, buckle up. First of all, in April 2000, SM Entertainment became the first K-pop company to be publicly listed on the Kostak, which is a Korean stock exchange, kind of equivalent to the Nasdaq here in America. But in order to achieve the necessary market capitalization to get the company listed, SM issued some new stock. And then Izumon allegedly withdrew money from the company ledgers uh, and then used it to buy that newly issued stock, which artificially inflated the value of the company enough to get it listed. 
Isuman, for his part, maintains he acted on behalf of the company, you know, and if in the process he personally happened to make some money, well, you know, just a, just a bonus. Uh, so I think it's also important to note here, and I'm going to hammer this in because I see a lot of kind of outrageous things in the K-pop sphere, but Isuman was not, is not an outlier in his early 2000s financial shenanigans. So to be clear, I'm not saying that what he did was good or right. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't sit in judgment there, right? What I'm saying is he wasn't an outlier in the broader industry, and it's important to keep that in mind. There was a hugely publicized effort at the time um, from the public prosecutor in Seoul to clean up the music business, which, you know, to be fair, was soaking in payola and kickbacks and other far more unsavory things. So, you know, while Isuman has developed this outsized reputation in K-pop stan lore, SM Entertainment was far from the only company to be hit with charges. The charges against Isuman were nowhere near the worst of the worst. So anyways, however you want to spin his actions, Isuman got word that he was coming under investigation for fraud, and he fled to Los Angeles leaving CEO Kim Kyung-wook in charge of the day-to-day running of SM Entertainment. Lee Simon spent his days playing golf and overseeing what he could via email. And also at this time, in late 2002, early 2001, contract negotiations for SM Entertainment's top earners, HOT, uh, were not going well, to put it mildly. Essentially, the group had been broken into two camps, Kangta and Moon versus the other three, Tony, Uhyuk, and Jaewon. There are conflicting reports about what actually happened, but here's the background against which the contract negotiations played out. One, HOT's album sales for the fifth album, Outside Castle, while still very big, were not quite as big as they had been. Outside Castle sold about 900,000 copies, which is great, but it's also almost 500,000 copies less than their fourth album, and it's likely this was taken as a sign of decreasing popularity, which would have meant the end of the group anyway, in kind of this teen pop context, right? Um, but this kind of ignores the broader trend of decreasing album sales across the region, specifically in Korea. Um, but again, like you can understand why SM Entertainment Management would have thought, oh, decreasing popularity versus this broader trend of decreasing sales, which, you know, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have known that this was the, the start of a big decline, right? HOT as a group, while not causing Hyunjin Young levels of trouble, had still caused headaches for SM Entertainment. Um, getting banned from television, stirring up uh, controversy, getting into scandals. Um, and it's something that still happens as idols grow in their careers. They started wanting more and more money, and were likely growing harder and harder to control. And number three, at this time, normal contracts for teen pop stars were only for three years. So HOT's top rivals, DSP's Jexies, they just disbanded in 2000 because of the three-year contracts. So while DSP had wanted the group to continue, the members would not, could not agree to a renewal. You know, it just hadn't occurred to these entertainment companies when they were starting these groups in the mid-90s that a teen pop group might have legs, you know, kind of beyond that initial boom. So even though HOT was doing very well and they did bring in a lot of money, they also cost SM Entertainment a lot of money. And with these contract renewals, the members were you know, by some accounts, asking for an even bigger piece of the earnings that they brought in. And that was something that SM Entertainment did not necessarily want to give them or, or think it was worth trading, you know, for um, an increase in their contract terms. Because again, they thought that the the popularity was declining, right? Kangta and Heejin, they'd signed contracts earlier than the other three had. And actually, you can see them backdancing for Yu Young Jin when he was an artist under SM planning. Um, so they had signed renewals for more money in 2000 and had been given promises of solo work. And unfortunately, the three members whose contracts were up for renewal in 2001 were also considered, you know, by some, the least three popular members. What seems to have happened at this crucial point 
as best as I can tell, is that SM Entertainment, under the direction of Isuman, had taken a look at the bottom line and decided that HOT just cost too much money and that what they would do was just kind of keep the two most popular ones and, you know, turn them into solo acts. And while the other three members thought that they were negotiating, you know, in in good faith for a better deal, SM never had any intention of offering them one. And by their account, anyway, the remaining three members, they did not want to quit HOT. So it was a real shock for them when they were told that their services were no longer required. And this was possibly one of the dumbest business decisions in the history of K-pop, if not the dumbest decision in the history of K-pop, you know, except for one, which, you know, we'll get to uh, a couple episodes down the road. And it was an early sign that SM Entertainment had a real learning curve when it came to understanding what boy group fans actually wanted from their boy groups. And something that we'll also see play out with TVXQ is that while Yes, HOT was popular, the members were popular, right? But there's this magic about a group, about that group brand, that doesn't necessarily transfer to the individual members when they go solo. But Isuman's dumb business decision was a lucky break for his old friend, yes, Jungheiek over at Citus, the company that was emerging as SM's next big rival. And he welcomed the three ex-HOT members with open arms, signing them as JTL. group SES the next year, he also snapped up former SES member Eugene, too. And the newly christened JTL roared into the charts and fans' hearts with songs like A Better Day, despite efforts on the part of SM Entertainment to keep them off the air. They just, they didn't have the clout then to keep them completely off the air. And that would change. Meanwhile, SM Entertainment was about to enter a very dark era, with Isuman hiding out abroad. As I said, he'd left the company in the hands of CEO Kim Kyung-wook. And under CEO Kim, nicknamed the man with the minus touch, the company had let go of their top earners with no replacement plan in place. Every single artist that debuted under CEO Kim flopped big time. Most K-pop fans today have never even heard of these groups. Milk.
Okay, but not only were the acts failing to duplicate the success of HOT and SES, CEO Kim had also set up a subsidiary company uh, for each group, possibly trying to duplicate what Isuman had done with life planning, right? And this created both financial and management complications for SM Entertainment as a company. Just imagine trying to uh, balance the books when you have 80 billion shell companies underneath. And remember that while CEO Minus Touch Kim is struggling to launch Milk and Blackbeat, the public prosecutor in Seoul was also bringing down hellfire onto the music industry, leveling crippling fines and creating an overall chilling effect among domestic producers. SM stock prices that they had, you know, they'd worked so hard like to get listed. Uh, stock prices were cratering. The company was in real trouble. Um, the one bright spot in all of this was a young teenage singer called Boa. After a modestly successful Korean debut in 2000, at the age of 13, Boa had been shipped off to Japan where she got a crash course in how to be a J-pop idol. Her manager at the time was a man named Kim Young Min. We'll encounter him again in a few episodes. Just like with HOT, there's a few important things in Boa's story that feed into what happened to TVXQ and are worth digging into. I mentioned earlier that SM Entertainment girl group SES had flopped in Japan, and allegedly one big reason for this was the relatively short length of their contract. Again, you know, uh, I think they had three years, I think SES had a five-year contract. This could be apocryphal, but it makes complete sense with what happened later. So the story goes that SES had been turned down by Sony because they only had this five-year contract with SM Entertainment. Sony said that to properly launch a group in Japan, they needed seven years. So figure in another year or two for debut in Korea, plus training time, and suddenly you're looking at a commitment of at least 10 years from your teen pop artists. This is almost certainly why BoA was debuted so young, in response to the failure of SES in Japan. So Isuman, he later confirmed that when Boba was scouted, they were looking for a girl in junior high school. So her young age would give the company just that much more time on the clock. And there was another young trainee, a boy who also joined at this time. Uh, and he actually trained with Boa, named Kim Junsu. So Boa made her Japanese debut in 2001 with a Japanese version of her Korean debut song. And this, you know, was released as a single on Avex tracks. The first release in what would be a long partnership between SM Entertainment and this Japanese record company called Avax. pause the story of SM here in 2001-2002 so we can take a look at Japan's AVEX. So AVEX grew out of a scene of record heads that worked and hung out at a chain of record rental shops called UNI. Matsuura Max started as a part-time employee at a branch in Yokohama before opening his own franchise in 1986. He was a true record head. He also had a real eye for talent, and a not insignificant number of later AVEX artists were either patrons of or staff at Max's branch of UNI. So Max's shop reflected his own wide-ranging taste in music, specifically in imported Eurobeat. He was ambitious, and when he was approached by a buyer for another shop for help in getting imported albums, Max decided to get into the wholesale record and CD business. And that's where AVEX begins in 1988, which, if you'll remember, is just around the same time as um, companies like SM Planning were getting off the ground in Korea. 
Max was then approached by Time Records Italy to release an album directly in Japan rather than just importing it. He takes this major gamble and he starts a new record label, Avex Tracks, and releases Super Eurobeat Volume 1 in 1990. And then for the next few years, Avex Tracks mainly focused on dance and club music. It was the right time and the right place for Eurobeat. And early Avex artists like Komuro Tetsuya and The Eternal TRF. would eventually branch out of pure dance music and make moves into R&B and pop, reaching an agreement with Japanese idol company Johnny's and Associates in 1995 for their new boy group V6. And Max would also scout and sign a young singer named Hamasaki Ayumi, who would release her first single on Avex Tracks in 1998, reaching her first number one on the Oricon charts in 1999 with Love Destiny in April. And then her first million seller, million seller, Boys and Girls in July, and then her second million seller in August. And, and keep in mind, right, that this is all playing out, this late 90s AVEX million selling is all playing out against the background of massive financial crisis in Asia. And, you know, SM Entertainment wasn't the only company that was looking to try to expand its reach beyond domestic borders, right? And dance music was something that had gained popularity around Asia uh, in the 90s. And AVEX were like, okay, well, we're going to try and take advantage of this, right? So to that end, AVEX pushes into Taiwan and they make a deal with Taiwanese label Rock Records in 1998. And Rock Records was also home to another foreign act from Korea, Klon. And if you remember way back at the beginning of the episode, Hyunjin Young had this backing group named Wawa. Well, the first generation of Wawa debuted as their own dance-focused unit, that, that's Klon, right? And they were primarily this dance music act. And just like the AVEX artists, they also found the Taiwanese market very open to foreign club music. In a couple of articles that I found, a senior Rock Records employee tells the story of Klon's first showcase in Taipei. So not many people had initially turned up to see, you know, like some unknown act from Korea, right? But as they performed, more and more people kind of just stopped to listen. And then by the time they had finished this showcase, by ripping open their shirts to expose, you know, muscle chests, they had attracted like this big crowd who all went into the record store next door to buy the album. So Klon went on a lengthy hiatus as a group for reasons I won't get into here. But their song, Bing Bing Bing, is still one of the best-known K-pop songs in Taiwan. And if you search their name in Chinese on YouTube, you will find, you know, all kinds of parodies and cover versions. <laughs> Okay, 
It's still a, a well-known song. At this point, you know, here we are, mid to late 1990s. Avex group and Max, you know, they, they would have been aware of the Korean wave and dance music just via, you know, connections in Taiwan. And so it makes sense that Avex would be the perfect partner for this small but fast-growing independent Korean music company that was also looking to break into foreign markets. SM Entertainment. So in October 1998, the governments of Korea and Japan announced a new era of cooperation. Then in November 2000, SM and AVEX announced their own joint, you know, cross-the-sea partnership. SM would distribute AVEX artists in Korea, you know, no songs featuring Japanese lyrics, uh, OVS, and then AVEX would distribute SM artists in Japan, and then later have a stake of the new SM Japan subsidiary when it was launched. And it was around this point that SES would make the jump to AVEX, although sadly it was kind of too late. So the two companies were not only both, you know, kind of forward-thinking, growth-minded, but I'm sure they were also betting on the upcoming 2002 World Cup, which was jointly held by Japan and Korea, to open hearts and wallets on both sides of the EC slash Sea of Japan. And the first artist to benefit from this brand new era of cooperation would be, circling back, <laughs> the young teenage boa. So here we are, 2000 going to 2001, SM Entertainment list. They were just listed on the stock exchange, right? They've just signed a deal with one of the hottest music companies in Japan. HOT was the biggest thing in Korean music. And Boa is like, she's jetting off to Japan to work on her Japanese debut with the people who had just launched million seller Hamasaki Aimi. And then things fell apart for SM with HOT disbanding, Isuman wanted by Interpol, but Boa. Boa would soldier on. Just days after HOT's legendary 227 concert held February 27th, 2001 at Seoul Olympic Stadium in front of something like 80,000 hysterical fans, the final time they would perform on stage together until 2018. So a few days after that, Boa performs a modest showcase in front of 150 fans at a Komuro Tetsuya slash Avex owned dance club in Roppongi in Tokyo. March 7th, 2001. She was 14 years old and spoke almost no Japanese. For Boa, her first year in Japan, 2001, where she debuted a year earlier when she was only 13, 2000. So that first year was all about growth. And she released two, you know, modestly successful solo singles, followed by a tie-up with Korean Megacorp Latte for a chocolate brand, and a collaboration charity single called The Meaning of Peace with another up-and-coming AVEX artist named Koda Kumi. building her brand. So when Boa makes her Japanese album debut March 13th, 2002, she enters the Oricon chart at number one for the week. It, you know, it's just a remarkable achievement for a Korean artist in Japan. In the next month, April 2002, she releases her second Korean album. In May, she 
passes the Korean equivalent of the GED exam and also performs a showcase in New York City. In June, she was invited to go to the 2002 World Cup closing ceremonies as a special representative of Korea. In September, she records with popular Irish boy band Westlife in London. In October, she performs at a Japan-Korea friendship concert. In November, she's at SM Town Live in China. Um, you know, the end of the year, she performs the Korean version of her single, Valenti, on Korean TV, and then the Japanese version of the same song on Kohaku Utagasen, which is this prestigious New Year's Eve concert on Japan's national broadcasting channel, NHK. And she wasn't even 18, right? So 2003, Boa continues her successful run in Japan with a solo tour, this run of top five singles. And meanwhile in Korea, Isumon has finally returned from LA to face the financial impropriety charges and, you know, hopefully get SM Entertainment back on track. And something that's important to note when looking at Boa's story is that for all that she's rightfully looked at today as breaking new ground for Korean artists in Japan, her story is a bit different than the wave of artists that would follow her. Despite her debut happening during that giant buildup to the jointly held 2002 World Cup, Boa wasn't marketed as a Korean artist in Japan. She was marketed as an up-and-coming AVEX artist and just as like a regular powerhouse vocalist. So I'd already mentioned AVEX artist Hamasaki Ayumi, but Kodakumi, who Boa had that charity single with in 2001, she also starts breaking out around this time. I mean, this was just the era of these solo female singers. Utada Hikoru, Misha, Otsuka Ai, Crystal K, Aiko. Um, these ladies, they just dominated the popular music scene. So Boa, at the, she was in the right time at the right place. She just fit into the Japanese pop zeitgeist. And... You know, meanwhile in Korea, as some entertainment in the idol industry, they were struggling. Um, although that hadn't stopped talented young trainees from flocking to the brand new idol agencies, hoping to be part of the next HOT or SES. And, you know, part of that too, obviously, was um, kind of the aftershocks of the Asian financial crisis. And a lot of these teens, you know, they, they wanted to earn money to help their families. So it was during this era about 2001 to 2003, idol groups, they really seemed to be on the way out, um, at least in Korea. You know, you had Shinwa, and they, you know, they had a, a hit with Perfect Man, but they weren't generating HOT numbers, and they weren't getting support from CEO Kim, who let their contract expire at the end of 2002. He also let popular girl group SES go at the end of 2002, as I mentioned earlier. But it's not fair to blame CEO Kim completely for this. Part of the problem for SM and the other companies producing idol groups was simply that the mood in Korea had turned against them. They turned against that kind of bubblegum, teen pop, sweetie sweetie, you know, just that kind of ethos and image represented by songs like Candy. And in a lot of ways, at least to my eye, it kind of echoed what happened in America around the same time. So just like American teens had moved on from Backstreet Boys versus NSYNC to groups like Blink-182 and Korn, Korean teens were moving on from HOT versus Jexies. Um, in June 1999, before all of this went down, Lee Man wrote a very telling editorial for the Donga Ilbo newspaper where he defends HOT against charges that they can't sing. But he also says that it's true that they aren't traditional, like, quote-unquote singers per se they're singing entertainers. And, you know, what this points to, at least, you know, to my eyes, is that in Korea, the teen pop boom was seen as just that, like a trend, and it wasn't taken very seriously, which was a problem when the idol groups at companies like SM Entertainment wanted to sell to audiences that wanted to hear them in places like Japan and China, where there was a lot of money to be made, right? But these weren't necessarily something that Korea was interested in. So as 2003 dawns, SM has a successful working roster of basically just BOA and the former HOT members turned soloists, Kangta and Moon Meanwhile, DSP has Yi Hyori as a breakout star with her 
too erotic for television song 10 minutes debuts a massive new solo star named Rain. YG Entertainment launches R&B Star 7 and a vocal group called Big Mama. PD and Drunken Tiger were making waves in hip-hop, you know, this was a real crisis point for the burgeoning K-pop idol industry, with the company swiftly circling the drain. Could SM Entertainment and Isuman assemble a dream team of young SM trainees that could A, sing well enough to beat the singing entertainer charge and compete with groups like Big Mama, and B, appeal not only to Korean teens, but also to teens in lucrative markets in Japan and China. It would take a maniacal level of control and a lengthy commitment from the group. And we'll meet the men who tried it. The rising gods of the East, Dongbang Shinki, Toho Shinki, DBSK, TVXQ, THSK in the next episode. And I'll play us out on one of my favorite BOA songs, Atlantis Princess. Stay tuned for part two. Don't